By Christmas 1484, Richard III knew that by the summer of 1485, his troubles would be over, one way or another. I think it's fair to say that up to the Parliament of 1484, everything went well for Richard. Successful seizure of power, successful elimination of political rivals, successful suppression of rebellion and punishment of rebels, and the rubber stamp of Parliament for the validity of his regime. It was all going swimmingly, until the spring of 1484, but from then on Richard faced a series of setbacks, beginning in March with the death of his only legitimate son, Edward of Midlam. From that moment on, Richard was on the back foot. There was a hemorrhage of gentlemen going to join Henry Tudor into exile. Nothing spectacular, but there can be little doubt that for every man who made the dangerous decision to defect, there must have been others who sympathised but shied away from such a dire course of action, which might threaten the fortunes of their families, possibly for decades to come. By October, Henry himself had moved to France, an enforced move which nevertheless helped his situation considerably. The escape of the Earl of Oxford from royal captivity near the vital outpost of Calais undermined the king's faith in the Calais commanders. A very capable general, Oxford was a key element of Henry's company. When Richard became king, England was technically at war with Scotland, and in the spring of 1484, Richard planned a summer invasion of Scotland, perhaps hoping that the old ploy of uniting people behind a foreign war would reduce opposition in England. But whether because of lack of resources, or grief at his son's death, or simply the distraction of having to prepare for an invasion by Henry Tudor, Richard did not carry through the Scottish attack, and by September 1484 he had been forced to negotiate a peace with the Scots. But there was another domestic issue which required Richard's attention. Henry Tudor's public oath to marry Elizabeth of York when he became king meant that she too now presented a threat to Richard. One way of neutralising her would be to marry her to someone else, of course. Richard, now childless, must have at least considered setting aside his wife in the hope of having sons by someone else. He would not be the first king to do so. But we must not forget that Queen Anne was Warwick's daughter and a heroine of the Neville North, which amounted to a great swathe of Richard's own power base. If he offended those Neville supporters, then Henry Tudor would be the least of his worries. He would be cutting off his own right arm. Even so, persuading the former queen, Elizabeth Woodville, to emerge from the sanctuary of Westminster Abbey with her daughters was something of a coup in itself, and he now needed to do all he could to keep the Woodvilles on side. By doing so, he could split the Woodville-Tudor alliance, which had tried to overthrow him in 1483. He almost succeeded in getting Elizabeth's son, Thomas Gray, Marquess of Dorset, to return to the fold, but his escape was foiled by Henry's men. Let it be said, though, as an aside, that whichever side Dorset was on, he was unreliable and likely to be a liability. All the same, 
this cozying up to the Woodvilles was a dangerous policy. By removing her brood from sanctuary, Elizabeth was bowing to the inevitable. But do we really think that she was ever going to forget, let alone forgive, the deaths of her brother Rivers or her son Richard Grey? While it could not be proven that Richard had ordered the death of her youngest sons, there was no doubt about Rivers and Grey. So we return to Christmas 1484, where much fuss was made at court of the young Elizabeth of York. We are told that she and Queen Anne even exchanged clothes. Contemporaries remarked upon it, so it obviously attracted some attention. But what are we to make of it? Well, at the simplest level, it may just have been the King and Queen trying to show that Elizabeth of York, Henry Tudor's intended, remember, was one of the family and full square behind the King. On the other hand, it might have been to raise Elizabeth's status at court prior to Richard marrying her himself. Let's have a look at the whole issue of Richard and Elizabeth of York. The first thing is to dispense with all the frippery and nonsense that historical fiction writers and historians who should know better have dumped upon us. Some would have us believe that Elizabeth of York, knowing that her uncle Richard had killed several of her closest relatives, was in fact in love with him. Spare me. He might be from the north, but he's not exactly John Snow, is he? Elizabeth of York would have been well aware of Henry Tudor's oath. Indeed, was probably involved in discussions with her mother about such a marriage as long ago as the late summer of 1483. We have to remember that in the 15th century, ladies such as Elizabeth were born to marry, not swan about and do as they pleased. Whilst we might disapprove of that, there's no point in pretending it wasn't the case. I imagine, though, that being at King Richard's court at Christmas 1484 was a hell of a lot better than being cooped up in sanctuary the previous Christmas with only her mother and all her sisters for company. I dare say any young girl would have welcomed the attention and improvement in her fortunes. What of Richard, then? The idea of marrying his niece had some attractions for him, but I've already explained that the fierce loyalty to Anne Neville in the North meant that he had to be very careful how he treated her. Divorce was thus out of the question. But in March, Anne became ill and died fairly shortly afterwards. This, in conjunction with Richard's plan to marry Elizabeth, has led to suspicions, both at the time and since, that Richard poisoned Anne. It was noted that when she was ill, he was rarely with her. But just because he didn't fancy sharing a bed with his sick wife doesn't mean he actually killed her. Having said that, for a king who desperately needed a male heir, her death was convenient. But we can draw no more conclusions about it than that. If Richard believed that the death of Anne would clear the way for a Woodville marriage, he was wrong. When he spelled out his cunning plan to the council soon after Anne's death, several key men were very hostile to the idea. Why? Surely it would remove one of Henry Tudor's most potent ways of gaining support. Well, the arguments put forward against such a marriage are not as significant as the people who were putting them forward. As mentioned before, 
One argument advanced was the possibility of a hostile reaction from the Neville affinity in the north, a fair point. But there was also a moral argument. Now, call me an old cynic, but whenever someone puts forward a moral argument as a vehicle to stop something, I want to look under the vehicle's bonnet to see what's really going on. Richard was told that he should not marry his niece because their close kinship meant that it was more or less incest. Of course, at that time, such a close affinity would be seen by the church as a problem, though such marriages did happen from time to time, and usually when powerful men, such as Richard, wanted them to happen. As I said, it's more helpful to look at who opposed the marriage. Key men, such as William Catesby and Sir Richard Ratcliffe, who were among the king's closest advisers. They had committed themselves wholeheartedly to his cause and had benefited a great deal as a result. A Woodville marriage, though it would undoubtedly hurt Henry Tudor, would also cause some political problems in England. Some of those who were rebels might decide to return. Pardons would have to be given and perhaps lands and offices already handed out would need to be restored. Not only that, but a resurgence of Woodville influence would surely not be to the benefit of those most responsible for their demise, such as Catesby and Ratcliffe. Elizabeth Woodville had several great qualities, but I don't think forgiveness was very high on the list. Catesby, Ratcliffe and others had ample reason, therefore, to persuade Richard to look elsewhere for a bride. It is a measure of how important their counsel was to him that he acquiesced. However, during March 1485, fake news had run amok, and on the 3rd of April, Richard was obliged to deny that he ever had any intention of marrying Elizabeth of York. Yet the rumours continued. Elizabeth herself was packed off to Richard's castle at Sheriff Hutton in Yorkshire, where she remained until matters were finally resolved in August. The problem for Richard was always that his power base was too narrow. His reliance on ex-Neville retainers worked for a time, but he needed more widespread support. He had tried several policies to prize support from Henry, yet in one way or another they all seemed to come to naught. For example, in his Parliament of 1484, he tried to create the image of a just king to broaden his appeal and he abolished the unpopular practice employed by Edward IV of raising income by means of benevolences. A benevolence was a sort of gift from a wealthy subject to his king, the sort of gift you make when your arm is twisted up behind your back. But then, as Richard's resources were depleted, by the costs of keeping England ready to face invasion, he too resorted to loans which were not exactly freely given. Where Henry Tudor was concerned, he reiterated the charge that the Earl came from a bastard line of descent and did not possess, therefore, a valid claim to the throne. He also attempted to paint the followers of his opponent as, quote, murderers, adulterers and extortioners. Though in general he adopted a high moral tone, for example, in his condemnation of his late brother's licentious court, yet he seemed unable to carry it off, because, fake news or not, it's quite clear that many of his subjects 
could not quite see beyond the allegations made against him. The death of his nephews, the poisoning of his wife, and the proposed marriage to his niece. For a king who presented himself as just and God-fearing, it didn't look that good. One of the things we have to grasp about these rumours is that it did not matter whether they were true or not. Despite all the trees felled to argue over whether Richard was guilty of these charges or not, it is of no political importance. The fact is that at the time, many were simply not convinced of his innocence. As a consequence, it was just very hard for those people to commit themselves to his cause. What characterised the last six months of his reign was desperation. On the surface, his position appeared strong. He had the support of his magnates, his bishops, and the means of raising a very large army to counter Henry. Yet beneath that veneer of strength lay serial weaknesses, not least a suspicion that he could not entirely trust some of his magnates. Hence, when he went to Nottingham in June 1485, ready to face Henry wherever he might land, he took with him as a hostage Lord Thomas Stanley's eldest son and heir, Lord Strange. Also, some of his most dependable men were instructed to watch others for signs of betrayal. Nevertheless, with, he hoped, his key men in the right positions, Richard was as ready as he could be, and now just had to wait. Throughout June and July, he was still waiting, and so were his subjects. And while they waited, they weighed up their options. In almost every case, their motivation would have been their own survival and the continued prosperity of their families. That is what would determine which way they jumped when Henry actually arrived, if, of course, they jumped at all. <laughs>